All right, everybody. Here we are with one foot in the grave and the other one pawing on a banana peel. Oh, no. My sons growing up learned all of these repeated phrases that I say. So now they use them. You come driving back home and here we are. Went, you know. That, that ex oh, I learned that phrase. Have you ever heard it before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. From Dr. Paul Bungus at uh, Concordia River Forest. And he, here we are with one foot in the grave and the other one pawing on a banana peel. Isn't that the great way to start Bible class? Okay. Uh, Reverend John Leiter uh, died about 12.30 in the morning on Monday. Uh, his funeral is on Friday, tomorrow, here at 11 o'clock. There's visitation for an hour preceding here. There's also visitation tonight at Harder Funeral Home from 4 in the afternoon until 7. So um, because of the funeral tomorrow, we'll have to end Bible class so I can have a 10.30 class that I normally have on Friday. So. John was, uh, the, he last served at Hope in Milwaukee and was emeritus then there. But uh, he had an extensive uh, career as, um, and I just received from Lynn that Sherry, um, handed out as an as a army chaplain. So, uh, he was actually an air defense artillery officer before he decided to go into chaplain. Which is what you were. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, we were both the, with the same missile system, Nitro When Deacon was, you know, before his retirement, he did that work for me here, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> missile defense. <laughs> work. Um, so, well, I'll just share this here. John, John enjoyed working in the central city. His outreach to the Hmong community ended in the establishment of Hmong Hope, which is a, a con kind of like congregation within a congregation that meets at Hope. Hope is on Highland and like 35th by the old Concordia. Um, he was proud to mentor five Nang Hare through his seminary training to become that congregation's first pastor. He also had the opportunity to help mentor African and African-American candidates for ordination and ministry in Milwaukee. When Hope and Bethlehem became a dual parish, he became their pastor too. In 1990-1991, John was called to active duty in the Army. He was attached to a unit from Michigan as their chaplain. Their mission was to prepare other units called up for Desert Shield, Desert Storm for deployment to Saudi Arabia. Besides being a chaplain for the soldiers and establishing a family support network for their dependents, he was an instructor on Islam and its customs. John retired from the Army in 1996 and then from full-time ministry in 2007. Um, but as pastors never really retire, he served churches that were experiencing vacancies for just a couple weeks or many months. John became involved in the work of Lutheran Hour Ministries. 
taking several district offices over the years. He also became active in the American Legion. He had just begun serving a term as their chaplain. So his blessings besides the opportunity to proclaim Christ in the church and community extended to his family. He and Lynn marked their 55th wedding anniversary, November 3rd. Uh, his three children grew up and flourished in their own lives. He has six grandchildren, some already of college age. Um, an unexpected bonus was his honorary daughter, Angelica, from Bogota, Colombia. He became the only dad she ever knew. Parenting her into successful adulthood was a blessing he never expected to have. All right, he beamed as he walked her down the aisle at her wedding. So, so there you, does that help? It's good. All right, so Psalm 97 is our psalm for the week in the congregation at prayer. And we'll sing a, the first couple of stanzas of God's own child, which is hymn 594. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Fire goes before him. His lightnings light up the world. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Zion hears and is glad. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Light is sown for the righteous. And joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. And give thanks to his holy name. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, 
and will be forever. Amen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Almighty and everlasting God, you would have all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By your almighty power and unsearchable wisdom, break and hinder all the counsels of those who hate your word and who by corrupt teaching would destroy it. Enlighten them with the knowledge of your glory that they may know the riches of your heavenly grace and in peace and righteousness serve you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. From the Catechism, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks to you for our baptism into Christ where we are buried with him through our baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. Grant us this new life, O Lord, that we might live faithfully and joyously as your children in the blessed hope of everlasting life, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, bless Beth, Chloe, Jody, Bob, Mackenzie celebrating baptismal birthdays that they may be preserved in Christ Jesus in true repentance and fervent faith in him. Bless Larry and Tammy in their wedding that as they celebrate their anniversary the strength of their marriage and the comfort for life's struggles may be found in Christ the heavenly bridegroom who has borne all of life's struggles for us. We commend to you our brothers and sisters suffering a variety of afflictions of the body. Jan, Cindy, Mark, Mark, Sarah, Mike, Peyton, Jamelin, Kathy, Heather, and Josiah. Bring healing to each of them according to your will. Give your peace to Sarah. We give thanks to you for her being spared from great physical harm in an accident last evening. And we commend to you the family, congregants, brothers and sisters in Christ, and friends of Reverend Schneider and Reverend Leiter, who mourn their deaths. Give them the very comfort of the gospel that these ministers proclaim to others. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God's own child, 594, stanzas one and two. God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. He, because I could not pay it, gave my full redemption price. Do I need this treasure's many? I am one with more than any that brought me salvation free, lasting to eternity. Sin disturbed my soul no longer, I am baptized into Christ. I have come for even stronger. Sacrifice should a guilty conscience seize me since my baptism did release me in a dear forgiving flood, sprinkling me with Jesus' blood. All right, Matthew chapter 20. Pastor Gelbach says, you wrapped up chapter 19. Chapters and verses, as we've said, are not necessarily separations from one part to a different part that speaks of entirely different things. There were no chapters and there were no verses in the original text. So in the fourth discourse that began in chapter 18, we heard Jesus extolling his forgiving righteousness and to put a stumbling block in the path of someone who trusted in Christ for salvation was the greatest sin of all. And he warns of that. The dealing with the sinning brother is for the sake of not getting your pound of flesh, but restoring them to the grace of God. He told the parable of the unforgiving servant at the end of chapter 18. The pharisaical self-righteousness with respect to marriage was then addressed in Matthew 19, which culminated in the discussion of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the only one who is good is Jesus. Follow me. Let go of everything else and follow me. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom. Why? Because they make a God out of these things. They trust in them. Well, who then can be saved, the disciples uttered. And Jesus said in verse 26 of 19, 
With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, even the salvation of the self-righteous, the arrogant, the proud, those who trust in money, and so forth. And at the end of chapter 19, there was the promise to the Christian that you may lose family, friends, and others in this life who don't believe the gospel and who turn away from you. But in the life to come, you will have many more uh, family members. So everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. So that was the end of chapter 19, just a little quick. But now chapter 20 is still talking about the forgiving righteousness of Christ in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So this interlude between the fourth discourse and the fifth discourse of Jesus still had a couple of parables in it. The parable of the unmerciful servant and now the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Who knows what Sunday in the historic church year this parable is read. Septuagesima, which is that fancy word that basically means nearly 70 days to Easter. Sexagesima, the Sunday after that, nearly 60 days. Um, and then quinquagesima, nearly 50 days. That's called estimating, I guess, which, but pretty bad estimating. <laughs> but those are the names of the Latin. Um, that the Jesima Sundays, and there's three of them, this coming Sunday is Transfiguration, and then the Jesimas are between Transfiguration in the historic series and First Sun and Ash Wednesday. And the, um, they're kind of a pre-Lenten time. At one point, Lent was even longer than it is now. Um, it is somewhat of a um, holdover from the medieval church. But Lutherans historically have noticed something about those sequence of Sundays. The parable of the workers in the vineyard is about grace. Then on the next Sunday, Sexagesima, do you know what the gospel reading is? The sower and the seed. So the seed is what? The word of God. So Septuagesima is about the grace of God. The, the Latin would be sola gratia, grace alone. Sexagesima, the sower and the seed, is about the word of God, sola scriptura. What's quinquagesima? Well, do you remember the, it is where Jesus, what's it about, Susan? I remember it first, I guess, I'm sorry. What's that? The healing of the blind man and Jesus' prediction about his suffering and death. It's really a Sunday of 
sola Christus, Christ alone. So these kinds of solas are very um, central to kind of Lutheran conceptualizations. Grace alone, um, Scripture alone, faith alone, which is centered in Christ alone for that, for that third. So the blind man is given sight, faith. So grace alone, Scripture alone, Word of God alone, and faith alone or Christ alone, you know, faith in Christ. So that's kind of a neat way to think about it. And so we're going to begin with uh, Matthew 20. Notice verse 30 of the previous chapter, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So the self-righteousness of the Pharisees ranks for nothing. For the kingdom of heaven. So there is a connection then between what he just spoke in chapter 19 with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Surely this parable, well let's read it first and then I'll make my derogatory comments. <laughs> For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. <coughs> now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, so that'd be about nine o'clock in the morning, and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. Again, he went out about the sixth, that's 12 noon, and the ninth, about three o'clock in the afternoon, and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, the end of the day, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the first, the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered, and said to the, answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? 
So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So you can see how verse 16 picks up on chapter 19, verse 30, that last verse. So clearly, this landowner was not woke <laughs> whatsoever. Clearly, uh, there was latent uh, racism and class discrimination in him. But actually, you know, the, the, the Bible cannot be jammed into contemporary ideologies. The Bible's message always con, uh, confounds the contemporary world order and prevailing viewpoints. And everything about this parable to human reason is fundamentally unfair. And when we in the church are accused of being unfair, uh, not being equitable, I think we should embrace it. And I think we should embrace it on the basis of how Jesus not only was treated, but how he embraced the inequity and the injustice done against him. He did not get, I'll use a softer word than I wanted to use, ticked off at how he was treated. He was without sin. He had broken no law, and yet he is tried, false witnesses, put to death as if he were a criminal, and he wasn't. And he embraced it. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean in the church we don't you know, stick up for the underdog and so forth, but at the heart of the gospel is a kind of Justice that turns the world's understanding of justice, either the real, real justice based on law or wackoism based on uh, social uh, Marxism and so forth that is so prevalent in the world today. Okay? Um, and it's in Jesus and in his disciples who follow him that you see the true joy of life. That's a little bit of overarching you know, point of view, uh, those who live by the woke ideology of the age are bitter and angry and there is no peace and there is no contentment whatsoever. But let's get, let's get into this here a little bit. Jesus tells a parable about workers. I suppose I suppose one could argue Karl Marx could make hay out of this, right? Because it doesn't matter how much you work, you all get the same. <laughs> so see, you can, you can use the Bible, twist it to support any ideology, communism, so forth. You know, they sold all their possessions, and then see, there's communism. No, it was voluntary selling. It was not a government-mandated confiscation, but at any rate, you can, you, can, you can make, if, I, if you push, 
push it, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Workers in the vineyard. Isn't it strange that a parable about, well, what is the, what is the denarius for, sorry? It's a day's wage, but what does it represent? What does it signify in the parable? Well, it's a payment, but what is the payment? What is the denarius, the day's wage? What does it represent? Forgiveness of what I heard it over here. Forgiveness of sins or salvation, the gift of salvation in Christ. The forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. That's what it represents. Now for us as Lutherans, you know, salvation by grace and not by works, what is then strange to our ear about the parable? They worked for it. It's a work of faith. The Spirit works through the word. So, yeah. so is, the, is the parable teaching that um, salvation is by grace, but you still have to work for it? No. Is that the message? No. So what is the point? Salvation is entirely by grace. What makes you say that? It didn't matter what time the people started working, they still got the same denarius, the same gift. So even though the parable is set up as a parable about working in the vineyard, they are not compensated on the basis of their work, are they? For if they had been compensated on the basis of their work, there would have been a differentiation. And that's the scandal, isn't it? And isn't that the scandal of the gospel, that salvation is not by our works, but by the grace of God in the work of Christ? So Jesus deliberately uses a parable about working in a vineyard to actually zero in on the idea that it is not by our work that we merit the grace of God, the salvation of God in any sense. It is on the basis of his goodness, not our work. Where, does that, where is that especially highlighted in the verses of this parable, that it's on the basis of his grace and goodness, not on the basis of our works? Sharif. Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with... Yeah, it is, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? After all, I'm a white male. <laughs> or is your eye evil because I am good? Now the word good there, same as earlier. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but one, and that is God. Yeah, so he is the source of this salvation. There's a great paradox here involving work. On the one thing, on, on the one hand, salvation is entirely a gift of the goodness of the landowner, who is our Lord. On the other hand, he does enlist us into his service, as it were, in the vineyard. So, but rather than seeing the work or the service as a 
activity that is rewarded with by salvation, it is rather a work or an activity that flows from the grace of God that is believed. Okay? So, um, they have acceptance invitation to be in the vineyard. Well, that would be the call of the gospel. Okay, so the, the vineyard would be the church. And so they're called by the invitation of the gospel to believe in Christ and they become part of the church. And there is Christian service, isn't there? There is Christian work. But Jesus said elsewhere, when you have done all, say, we are unprofitable servants. Okay. So clearly they are not rewarded with the gift of salvation on the basis of their works. But also, there is the activity that flows from faith in the grace of God that characterizes, you know, life in the church. So, <clears throat> we can make some practical connections with life. Have you ever maybe experienced the idea that someone who grew up in the church, never missed a Sunday, was engaged in all kinds of activities in the church, volunteering and so forth, was given high honors, but perhaps such a person resents someone who is converted on their deathbed, who brings nothing to the, to the table by way of service, is there not the tendency to honor the one and sometimes despise the other? Okay. To do so would be a denial of the grace of God. Okay. In the Bible, you know, you've got examples of this. Uh, in how people in the church were viewed or treated depending on where they came from. The idea of entitlement. At the beginning of the gospel ministry of the apostles, it took a decade before the gospel was really preached in any meaningful way to the Gentiles. Why? Well, they're not the chosen people. They don't have the law of Moses. They're uncircumcised. They have to become good Missouri Synod Lutherans first, then they can and be circumcised. Okay? And then you have in Jesus' own ministry, who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, to which Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross. Wait a minute. That's not fair. He gets to be with Jesus in the kingdom. And he was, talk about the 11th hour. That was the last hour of his life. Okay. So there are examples of this. And um, none of us, you know, it doesn't, 
It doesn't matter whether we're a pastor who's going on 32 years in the congregation that he's serving. Um, or anybody else in between can say, do you realize who I am? What I've accomplished? It's actually why um, if I were ever to retire, I just want to be here one Sunday and then be gone. Where did he go? Well, he retired. He was raptured. That's what I, that's what I would rather, that's what I would rather have. Leave a note. Thanks for everything. Loved every minute of it. It just, it just, it makes my uh, flat, uh, skin crawl. Anyway. All right. Uh, any, any, uh, you want to ask some questions about this? Yeah. What, what's the meaning of the, or is your eye evil? I'm having trouble wrapping my head around that. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? What belongs to the Lord? Um, goodness, grace, life, salvation in Him. Or is your eye evil because I am good? Do you despise my goodness and grace? Looking through the eyes of a works righteous faith as opposed to looking through the eyes of faith in the grace of God. Okay. So the, uh, the ESV says, do you, do you begrudge my generosity? So yeah, that's, that's kind of blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, there's always interpretation in a translation. It, it's hard to avoid, but sometimes it's a little... Too much interpretation. Yeah. Other questions here. Now here's then um, what comes next. 17 through 19, his third prediction of his death and resurrection. Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge him and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Do you remember the other times that he uh, predicted? The second time was in chapter 17, where in verse 22 and 23, where after the transfiguration, coming down from the mountain, and then the boy is healed that they described as having epilepsy. 
and he talks about having faith as a mustard seed. And then, again, chapter 17, verse 22, when they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise, be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Do you remember the first time? In chapter 16, before the transfiguration, after, but in the same scene in Caesarea Philippi of his, uh, Peter's confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense, a stumbling block, a scandal to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I draw your attention moving backward to those three predictions because I not only want you to see the response of the disciples to the prediction, but I want you to also grasp in their response how what they're stumbling over is the very grace of God that the parable of the workers in the vineyard was talking about. Okay, So this is not fair, this is unjust. This is not the way. The first prediction, that's what Peter says. Here he's got it together. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and rise again the third day. God forbid it must not happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Okay? That makes no sense. What is Peter thinking about? He and the other disciples, as much as they, even at that time, are extolling Jesus as the Christ, Salvation somehow or other has got to be based on, on my work, my worthiness. You can't do this. And it sounds so pious, doesn't it, what Peter and the disciples are saying. The second time after the transfiguration, it just simply says they're what? Sorrowful. And then the third time that we just heard, uh, what is their response? Nothing. Sort of nothing. Well, okay. He, uh, he's repeating himself. Now, I have had this experience, actually. I will teach something and bring a point home. Uh, Pastor, I, there, there'll be objection. And then I'll teach it in another time, and maybe less objection. Then you keep teaching it, and finally, there's silence. So I sometimes wonder, maybe it's just like the disciples. Okay. All right, so he predicts the third time. Isn't it amazing how these predictions seem to go in one ear and out the other in terms of grasping it so that when it happens, they're not actually saying, hey, this is what he said would happen. But there is a certain fog, a certain blindness that covers over their, their reason. You see how the only ground of certainty for us is the Word of God. Because 
Even, even the disciples were so often confused. And if they're so often confused, how much uh, we? All right. This goes, by the way, to some of the function of the third use of the law, certainty. All right, so then uh, look at what happens. There is a response. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. This, this is, ought to be flabbergasting. Kneeling down, oh, very pious act. Kneeling down and asking something of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one at your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. I wonder what they were thinking. You know? Were they thinking, oh, ma? <laughs> yeah. Although, or maybe not. Response, their response doesn't seem to be that way. And Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are, able, what you are asking. Because if you sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he comes into kingdom, it means then that you were called to suffer with him. And that's what he goes to next. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The cup of suffering, which he predicted three times before this and just got through predicting? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Notice how Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3 is a baptism into the sins of the world to die the death of the cross in order to be raised to new life by the forgiveness, the righteousness that he accomplished. In our baptism, we are not only joined to Jesus' death and resurrection, but it may mean intense persecution and suffering for the faith. Now, what's the answer before you get the disciples' answer? What is the answer? Are you able? No, you're not. They said to him, we are able. You know, if I were Jesus, my response to this catechesis would have been, I've been they've been with me for three years. I'm an utter failure. <laughs> you know, exactly. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And in Holy Week, he's going to predict, you know, as we hear, heard in John's Gospel last night, the time will come that those who kill you will think they are rendering God a service. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. This helps. Uh, I thought you were going to ask this question, Brian. What as many are called, but few are chosen? Here's the answer. Okay. Many are called to faith, but few are chosen to suffer the way in which the apostles <coughs> did. Okay. That's a question I asked those two, two boys. Says, uh, are you willing to suffer that's what he's asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am and, and to be baptized with? And then, but then he says, you will. Now, it's not going to be in their own strength that they endure that, but, but, but you will. But it's not for mine to give such honors, but it is 
for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Many are called to faith, but few are chosen to suffer as Jesus would suffer. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. What recent Old Testament story should this remind us of? Joseph and the response of his brothers. What, is, what faith is operative in the ten who heard this? A works righteous faith. Again, it's actually comforting to know Jesus can do all this teaching. No one was more faithful than he, and still it doesn't sink in. You block it. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Now, if that weren't going to be a temptation and a perennial problem in the church, Jesus never would have had to say, it shall not be so among you. The reality is, it is all too often so in the church. Okay, where one exalts himself over another on the basis of merit, worthiness, standing, whatever. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Remember how he talked about greatness back in the uh, chapter 18 that set up the dealing with the sinning brother. Now, who is the greatest? And he takes a little child and he sets the child in the midst and says, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's echoing that exact same thing here. So you see how, I mean, works righteousness, entitlement, the feeling of self-justification is corrosive in the life of the Christian and in the church. Deacon? That's right. Who is the greatest? He who sits at table or he who serves? Well, he who sits at table. Correct. Yet I am among you as one who serves. So, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. That's not very woke either. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And when you talk about the ministry, that's what Paul was talking about uh, in the Acts of the Apostles this morning for the Feast of St. Titus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He's particularly accenting as a minister, it is more blessed to give. You're, you're gonna, your satisfaction is going to come not out of receiving accolades and praise, but serving with the word and having that word received by others. That's where the, the joy uh, and the satisfaction comes. So I'm just going to leave a note 
Thanks for everything. <laughs> All right. Now, we'll take up, I've got the kids coming here. Um, we'll make a couple more comments. This is kind of a, a, a climactic part here. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what makes him, according to the parable of the landowner, good. That's what makes him good. And that's what we believe in and trust in his service to us that we don't deserve. When that ordering is kept, then the Christian's perspective on life is properly uh, ordered. So then we got the blind men receive their sight that sets up uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The fifth and final discourse uh, begins in chapter 23. So we have the material, which includes other parables, uh, after the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, the parable of the wedding feast. Um, for tax season, we've got render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then the challenges from the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees, which are always fun. So it's what to look forward to. But the fifth discourse, the end time parables, begins in chapter 23. Okay. The grace of our... Oh, it's Bill's birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. You, happy birthday, dear William. Happy birthday to you. Look, you even got applause. You even got applause. Fantastic. Okay, I will have class in here in a couple of minutes. I especially need this table. <laughs>